Well, I mean, first of all, I go in and I've been there about a month and, and I'm meeting with, with our people doing travel and we're, they're asking me about hotels, hotels in North Carolina, hotels, wherever, Georgia Tech, where, where you want to stay? Where do you want to stay in Omaha? I remember looking at him with his blank face like a deer in the light thing. I'm sure I'm looking at him going, well, I thought you had to qualify. And they go, we go all the time. Welcome into another episode of Baseball Americas from Phenom to the Farm. I'm your host, Kyle Banduho. Today's episode, I am joined by Jim Morris, a recent inductee into the ABCA Hall of Fame and legendary head coach in Miami and Georgia Tech. Where, where do you even start with Coach Morris? We talk four decades of coaching at the highest level of amateur baseball, his time at Georgia Tech building an ACC bottom dweller into a competitor, then heading to Miami, making 13 College World Series appearances with two titles. We talk about those trips to Omaha, being on the losing end of Warren Morris's homer, uh, the walk-off home run to win the College World Series, uh, tons of recruiting stories. He, this guy recruited Nomar. He recruited Jason Veritek, Pat Burrell, Ryan Braun. We've even got a story about A-Rod, actually two bonus stories about A-Rod, including the the one day he spent on Miami's campus before signing with the Mariners. There's a ton here for any college baseball fan. Huge thanks to Coach Morris for stopping by. I, I could have talked to this guy for five hours. He had a million stories. Uh, I hope everyone enjoys it. I, I think anyone who listens to this show and is a fan of college baseball uh, will enjoy this one. Coach Morris was was fantastic. Uh, episodes of From Phenom to the Farm drop every other Tuesday. If you enjoy this episode, subscribe wherever you get your podcast and go check out past interviews. We have crossed the 85 episode mark, so that is 85 stories in baseball to go back check out. If you haven't yet, leave a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Also, make sure to subscribe to BaseballAmerica.com and the BA Podcast feed for all amateur baseball and prospect news. Uh, MLB draft recaps are up, signing updates, the non-drafted free agent tracker, and of course, prospect hot sheet. All the normal stuff is going on. And if you're you're still jonesing for some draft coverage, the 2024 draft top 100 has dropped. So there is something for everyone over at BA. And with that, let's talk to Jim Morris. Joining in for today's episode from Phenom of the Farm, the newest inductee into the ABCA Hall of Fame, two-time College World Series champion and longtime Miami and Georgia Tech head coach, Jim Morris. Coach Morris, thank you so much for joining the show. Thanks, Kyle. I'm glad to be here. Me too. I'm glad to have you at, at this time. The very, very fresh news of your you know induction to the ABCA Hall of Fame. i curious when you're going, when you're in the middle of, of this coaching career that you had, do do honors like that, like this, you know, being in the ABCA Hall of Fame, you got inducted into the Miami Sports Hall of Fame. Does stuff like that cross your mind as any sort of motivation? Well, I tell you, not really. I don't. I don't want to say it's motivation, but uh, the fact I probably went to the ABCA clinic at least thirty-five times. So I went to a lot of the dinners and stuff, and you listen to the guys talk. So I don't know if you think about it, but you're you're thinking about what you're doing and how they got there and. Uh, but Georgia Tech, I'm in the Hall of Fame in Miami, so it's kind of along with the Florida Hall of Fame and some different Hall of Fames. But, but this one right here is a big one, and uh, of course they released it yesterday. So it's been it's been kind of busy for the last 24 hours, but it's been great because I've got a lot of uh, phone calls and texts over 100 uh, in the last 24 hours from former players and friends from here and Georgia Tech. That uh, was nice to, to refresh our uh, memories a little bit. Well, I'm I'm very appreciative that you still kept this appointment and, and agreed to, to to do the show considering the news. But I want to dive right into it. you got a, a long story career. We have a limited amount of time. I want to get to as much as I can. I want to start. When did you know that you wanted to go into coaching? Wow. You know, that's a good question. Uh, I first went to college. I was just like a normal guy, a student in Miami. I, uh, and that's not where I went. But the average person changed their majors three times. When I first went to school, I was going to be an architect. I love drawing. And I love drawing houses. And, and I still, it's my hobby. I've owned 42 houses, which is kind of unique along with being a coach. And then I decided to go into business. And then uh, my junior year, I decided I wanted to be a coach and uh, really – Knew that when I was in pro ball watching and figuring out a couple of things. I tried to learn as much as I could about the game uh, and ask questions. But uh, I also figured out when I got to pro ball that maybe I couldn't hit well enough to stay too long in this game. But I could run and play defense. And But, you know, you stay in a game a long time by hitting. 
Yeah, and you so you start out you you assistant at App State, you coach at community college. It seems like did it you get to then get to Florida State. It seems like fairly quickly. Did it did it did that pipeline seem quick to you or were those years at smaller programs, smaller level of baseball seem like eternity? I, I gotta be honest, I don't even know what was ha- I didn't know what was happening. I uh, I was a grad assistant at Appalachian, so I was doing my master's degree. I was there for one cal- calendar year and uh, got my master's there while I was doing it as a GA. And then I was lucky enough, this is my big break. I got a job at DeKalb College. The South Campus started a baseball program. And I still to this day don't know how I got that job because I was 24 years old and I had my master's, but, you know, played a little minor league baseball, pro ball. And and uh, I just went after the job hard. And and uh, I thought it'd be a good opportunity, even though I really didn't know I didn't have these type of plans to end up in Miami or something. But but I went there and uh, I started the program the second year where national runner up lost in the finals to 13 innings and uh, the. Uh, had 47 guys drafted in four years, and so I kind of opened my career and it was a great opportunity for me. We had some really good players and. I stood on the guys hard. They had good grades and went to some really good schools and signed pro had one number one pick. I mean, when I say number one, the number one pick a year named Mike Lebo, I had some, a lot of draft choices, just, just uh, opened the door for my career that, and uh, of course getting an opportunity to go to Georgia tech because we played Georgia tech a lot. And then I got to Georgia tech and uh, people wondered, uh, I had some people who said, what are you doing? You're going to Georgia Tech. They've never won. They've never finished above last. But he got a new AD named Dr. Homer Rice. And people know Dr. Rice as an AD, as a head football coach at Oklahoma and some different places, with Cincinnati with the Bengals as a head coach. But as a player, he was a catcher with the Dodgers. So he had some baseball blood in, in him. And uh, I was the only person to interview for the job, actually. And he, he uh, offered me the job. And he knew what it take, took to win, and he asked me and, and just to make sure I knew, I think, and gave me every opportunity to to sell a great project, a great uh, school in Georgia Tech and a baseball program. So that was good. And of course, then you go to Miami where you're not supposed to ever lose the game. So it's a little bit I've, – I've gone from different uh, places to be able to win. So when you get to Georgia Tech, you're less than 10 years after graduating from college, after finishing up at Elon. When you when you get there, like like you said, a program hadn't hadn't won a lot, but that's that's an ACC program. They're they're playing top tier programs. Did you did you come in with a philosophy of these are the kind of kids we want to recruit at Georgia Tech? There's a certain kind of kid you have to recruit. Recruit. They have to be able to get it done in the classroom. But like kind of kids we want to have. This is the kind of baseball we want to play. Or does that stuff all just kind of fall into place with the hand you're dealt? I mean, I was 28 when I took the job at Georgia Tech. So I was the youngest coach in the ACC. And uh, I, I hadn't been in the game long enough as a coach or smart enough to figure out long-term goals. And what I, I was just looking for good players that were good students. And uh, and I thought we had a great product to sell in Georgia Tech. And uh, I, from day one at uh, my opening interview at DeKalb College in Atlanta paper, I, I told, told him, and we didn't even have a team, you know, that I wanted to go to the World Series and win it. So that was, uh, I don't even know if I knew what I was talking about at that point, to be honest with you, but uh, I felt like the same way at Georgia Tech and, and Miami, but I took that job and I took it on July 1st of, uh, of uh, I think what year now, 1982, I think it is. And uh, um, I, I signed some good players. One of the first players I signed was a guy that, that texted me this morning, Scott Jordan, who, uh, from Columbus, Georgia, went in and signed him, and 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 the school starts in August. But people weren't working as hard back then. The games changed, so I I felt like I worked people on it, you know recruiting trail and practice and everything else. And Scott played in the major leagues, and I was and he was a great great student. And so it was just a combination of a lot of things. But I think I was I wasn't experienced enough to really know what I was doing, other than I wanted really good players, and I didn't want anybody outwork me. With that, how did you, how do you figure out the recruiting trail at that point? You're a really young coach. There's no, obviously there's no perfect game. The internet is not, you can't like look these kids up on YouTube to figure How do you figure out the recruiting trail and who you need to bring in to compete at the highest level? And, and how did you 
you know, walk into the walk into some of those living rooms as a much younger player and say, I am the guy that you should trust your son to. Well, the uh, the Cab Cods was the biggest selling point where they didn't have a team, but I was lucky enough that some of the pro scouts, the fact I was playing with the Red Sox, uh, the Mets, a guy named Joe Willingham knew all the players in Atlanta. A guy named Tommy Mixon with the Dodgers helped me a lot. So a lot of the pro scouts were helping me, a young guy out of pro ball and going into college coaching and help, you know, me send me in the right direction. And back then I wasn't flying looking for players, man. I was driving a car. You know, I mean, I drove to New York and everywhere else. It didn't matter where, where I was, I was going to go wherever to find players. Did not have a recruiting budget, by the way, just put gas in the car and went. And uh, so uh, just looking for good players. And, you know, I've always felt like I was pretty good at looking at a player and going, you know what? I think this guy can play. He reminds me of somebody. This guy reminds me of Nomar. This guy reminds me of, of uh, Ryan Braun or something. You know, I'm trying to name you know, says I, I kind of be, I, I'm trying to be careful when I name players because I was I had so many good players. I had like 200 draft picks when I was a college coach. So I try not to name one guy, and not name somebody else. But uh, you know, they remind me of players. It was the biggest thing when I was out recruiting. Well, I, I mean, I do want to talk about I, periodically throughout the show. I want to talk about recruit how you got certain guys to campus, and you mentioned Nomar. I would I want to. Obviously, I want to talk about Nomar. Love Nomar. When was the first time you saw him play in person or, or heard of him and realized that's a guy you need to go get? Well, that was back in the area code games in uh, Long Beach State, and Nomar was a uh, upcoming senior in high school. It, it's changed, you know, back then. I mean, I told you Scott Jordan, I didn't sign him to after he finished high school. And then he moved up a little bit. You were seeing guys in his junior year. And the best showcase back then by far was the area code games in California. You had players from everywhere, from Florida, Georgia, a lot of players from California. And I saw him, and and no market had gone anywhere he wanted to. Uh, and we're lucky enough that uh, I can't remember all the places he he, uh, he visited, but he was a 4-0 student at a private school. He was a great student. And uh, he, uh, you know, and – I think he weighed 142. He was 5'10", 142. He had a great arm and he could hit. And he wasn't much bigger when he finished. You know, my last time I saw him at uh, Georgia Tech, just a funny story. When I left and I was leaving, it was a junior year in the middle of the year. And Miami, to be honest, just made me a, an offer I couldn't refuse. I thought it was such a great opportunity. last thing I told Nomar was that uh, I said, Nomar, now, man, now when you get in pro ball, you're going to have to bunt a little bit more and all these things. So I saw him, I think, after he hit 25 home runs, uh, uh, and I met up with him. And first thing he looked at me, he said, still working on that button. <laughs> so he got a lot bigger and stronger and faster, like guys do at that age. You know, it's amazing how bigger and stronger guys get between the ages of 18 and 22. And he worked very hard. But uh, another one of those good stories that uh, to get a kid out of California, I've always had some good players out of California. Yeah, Nomar ended up. Uh, I think he hit a little bit too much to uh, to bunt in the big leagues. But so when you're, what was the sell when it's whether it's a Nomar or a Jason Veritek, a Jay Payton, or whoever? When you're the the Georgia Tech sell, what were you? You know, did it change kid for kid, or like what was really the pitch to get kids to come out to Atlanta, especially kids who lived way out of state? Well, you know, of course, all of them are different, and all of them were kind of late back then to when you were getting guys to to commit compared to today where you're recruiting them when you're in a, geez, I don't even want to say eighth grade or whatever. Some of these guys, it's amazing how young they are. It just, and I just set you up for mistakes, which is a different uh, issue, but uh, a guy like uh, Nomar took his business everywhere and, and uh, decided Georgia tech was the right place for him to go combined with a great education, which he's always, you know, worked at that'd be the best student he could. He went in the fifth round out of uh, high school, and uh, made a very hard choice to be able to pass up signing. I think he turned down 500000 which was a lot back then. And <clears throat> to come to college, of course, he got a lot more and went in the first round when he, when he finished three years later. But uh, he uh, – and then Veritek uh, was kind of late too. Uh, you know, Jason, I went into Orlando. Uh, he he sent me a, a video, him and Brad Rigby. So I got on a plane and – Flew in, really wasn't right in Veritech. And another catcher I was looking at, and, and Veritech. So I, I fly into Orlando, Lake Brantley High School, summer league program. And high school, Veritech played third base and hit right handed. 
So I saw him on his summer league team where he was switch hitting and catching. And uh, I saw him play one game and uh, and met with him and his family after the game, offered him a scholarship right then. And within a week, he committed. Uh, if I, I may be wrong, this I don't think Veritech even visited Miami. I mean, visited uh, Georgia Tech at that point. We made a full scholarship. I mean, he was a, he was a horse and uh, got him. And uh, But all those stories are different. Jay Payton's a different story. Ryan Braun's different stories. There's always some good stories in, uh, in your coaching career, different ways you remember players. With with guys like that, like the Nomar, um, Yonder Alonzo, who was on this pod, guys who get that pro attention as they're leaving as they're leaving high school and you're not only, you know, you've signed them, you've done the, the hard work getting them to commit to your college, but now you're you're working against that that pro ball money. What is the I guess, what is your role during that process? Cause like Yonder Alonzo, who did not come from a whole lot and decided to turn down some money to to come to Miami what is as the coach how do you obviously you want the kid on campus um you know you've allocated the scholarship that's obviously a talented player what what is your role and how much you participate in that decision or what you do or do not say to the player are you selling more your school do you ever have to sell against professional baseball like how did how did you walk that that tightrope when kids are, are going through that decision well, it was probably an easier decision for me to try to talk guys into going to college or staying in college uh, after I've been in it for years because understanding what the possibility is and what the odds are playing the big leagues is pretty tough. And uh, a guy like Nomar didn't have any money. Uh, and as you said, Yonder didn't have any money. His, his parents came over from Cuba. And, and I'd seen uh, Yonder play before, but I went you know, there right in his – time when we're, we're getting ready to offer him a scholarship and a little lefty out of Columbus High School named Rodriguez pissed against him and struck him out three times and under tells me about it. And, oh, my gosh, he's not going to offer me. And, and of course, we did. And it was a great story. But, you know, Nomar turned – I mean, uh, Younger, I think, turned down 300000 or something, which is a lot of money, particularly to a kid that doesn't, uh, doesn't own a car. His dad's working three jobs trying to make ends meet for the family. And, but his dad was the hidden coach for, uh, for Cuba before they left and got out of the country. And, uh, and yonder, you know, just, uh, I mean, I'm going to try to sell them. I, I got to tell you, I got to try to sell them on going to college and more and more kids are going and understanding just the odds today of the value of going to college first. And I think the pro people are too, and trying to eliminate some of their mistakes because they always said 95% of the guys don't make it to the big leagues. And, so that means 95% of the time it's a bad decision if you don't go to college, in my opinion. So it was a, you know, I would always throw out as much as I could the value of an education at Georgia Tech or the value of an education in Miami. Miami has a probably a, about 180 majors and whatever you're majoring in, Kyle, that's our best one. That was the one I was selling that particular day, but in communication or whatever. So, uh, you know, I was working hard trying to get the kids and I, and I, and I believe what I was saying. It wasn't like I was, was talking out both sides of my mouth. I really believed that uh, college was the, the best place to go unless maybe you're a first-rounder. I've got a son that's 11 years old, and all I've been through in watching players, is my first kid, by the way, so I learned something every day from him. And uh, But uh, the real deal is I don't know what it would take for my son to bypass college. Just I know the value of an education and development mentally and physically and being able to sell out to, to players is, is something that's very, very important, whether it's these guys or Ryan Bronze or whoever it may be, some really, really good players. And take me back to college baseball in, in the 80s, in that during that Georgia Tech run, the College World Series has started getting televised on, on ESPN, the game's growing in popularity, but you coached in the ACC and and you know, it turns out in four different decades. I mean, I guess my, you know, the early part of the nineties wow. with Georgia tech and Miami simple. had that independent. It made me feel old four decades. <laughs> my goodness. <laughs> four good decades though. Okay, a lot, lot of, a lot of winning in the decades, yeah. but what was, what was college baseball like, you know, weekend to weekend in, in the ACC where, you know, we see now that almost, I would say a majority of, of ACC Big 12, SEC programs, the weekends, typically a big deal, you know, a couple matchups notwithstanding. 
was that feel there in the eighties when you're rolling into Tallahassee or you're rolling into Chapel Hill or, you know, Raleigh or, or anything like that? Well, I think going into Tallahassee in the eighties was different than going into the other ACC schools, you know, just because they got it going earlier than everybody else and had a great fan base and just playing there uh, was different than, and at Georgia Tech, when I took the job there, uh, we had two sets of bleachers behind the home plate and a press box, a, a block press box with it up high and stairs going up. And the, the uh, concession stand was a Coke machine that you could buy a Coke for 25 cents. So it kind of tells you the difference between <laughs> walking in that ballpark today. Of course, I didn't have uh, that new ballpark that they have now that Danny Hall has, but but uh, the game's changed so much in recruiting and facilities. And I look at these facilities, it's unbelievable. And that's just, a, it's gotten to be a, such a different thing. Even this is, a, you know, I've been out five years now, just a difference now with the transfer portal and, and the, uh, uh, the NIL deals that players are getting. It's, it's just changed so much in, in how you're recruiting. But I, I also remember when back in the day when, you know, we had the one-time transfer. I always thought the one-time transfer helped where I was at because I was at a good program and kids wanted to play where they were in the program I was at. So we didn't lose uh, good players overall. You know, we were getting players that, that didn't want to stay somewhere else. They thought they could play at a Miami or Georgia tech. So <laughs> I always thought that, and I think the transfer portal, uh, helps uh, Miami more than it hurts in Miami because kids grow up watching Miami on TV and, and some of these great programs and, and they, they want to play at those programs. So it, it opens a door for them with that transfer portal, but it's a lot more than it used to be just because, you know, it's just, uh, you can do it anytime you want. Mm -hmm. Do you think with, uh, with NIL, you could have, there may be a couple kids that ended up, going pro out of high school that you might've been able to say, Hey, come to campus. Cause you can get compensated a little bit for that. Like, do you, do you see that also helping the, the schools like Miami? Well, I mean, Miami's got a pretty good NIL system going there. And one of their alums is, uh, is helping players. I think Miami last year in baseball had seven guys on NIL deals and a, a great uh, example. That's the basketball, the two guard and transferred from Kansas or Kansas state. Uh, and got, and this is widely publicized. I mean, he got 400,000 a year for two years on new BMW to transfer to Miami and play basketball. Now they wouldn't have got him without the NIL. And, uh, so, uh, they're very aware of that. And, and there's a fine a line that you're, I'm sure you're dancing as a coach between the NIL and no communication, uh, between, you know, the coaches and the guy that's paying money, but, they're recruiting the same guys. And, you know, so it's, uh, I, I, it definitely helps players go to school. I don't care whether it's Miami or Florida or Florida state or, or wherever it's helping people go to school and, and stay in school. And, uh, they're not signing guys cheap anymore. Yeah, no, that's, that's for sure. One thing I want to go one more, uh, how things have changed and then get back to the, the career itself. But, I'm always pitcher usage. I'm always fascinated by because with, you know, over the course of your run, we have had, um, you know, an emphasis on how what's an acceptable pitch count and, and kids being more aware of what potential, you know, overuses or a yeah. Kyle, you watch, you watch now for the most part, the college postseason, it's really changed because except for some, some small ex exceptions, you've got to have a much deeper pitching staff now. And like towards your run, you had to have more guys available to throw because you couldn't, the number one guy couldn't go out there and throw 160 pitches or throw on two days of rest or things like that. So what the, the evolution of managing a pitching staff, how much more did that become more difficult with the, I, I guess the, the advent of, of what an acceptable pitch count might be towards, you know, in the late two thousands, mid two thousands, mid, mid 2010s. I mean, I always was conscious of pitch counts and guys not throwing too much and how often they came back to pitch or anything like that. And I uh, always kept the charts. I mean, when I went to Georgia Tech, I didn't have an assistant coach. So, you know, I was doing everything along with recruiting. And then finally I got to $1,000 for an assistant coach. I could pay him $500 in the fall and $500 in the spring. And that was the, the, the total amount I could pay. Uh, the coach was James Beavers. Uh, and 
had played at Georgia Tech, and he's got another a really good job. And, and uh, it's going on to have really good teams with the East Cop. But uh, but uh, the, the pitch counts, I was always conscious. I was always a big promoter to bullpen. I mean, I've been a big bullpen guy forever. And I think that's a lot of people give me credit to handling pitching staffs. And I really watched uh, Atlanta and Toronto in the World Series back in the day uh, when Atlanta was going up there. And uh, I was coaching in Georgia Tech, and I really was focused on the Toronto bullpen, not the Atlanta, and intrigued the way they handled the players. I mean, most people were there, and and I flew up with the mayor of Atlanta and one of the wealthy alumni from Georgia Tech, and another guy was a friend of mine on a private plane uh, to go up there and watch. But, you know, People up there partying and stuff and watching the game, eating hot dogs, drinking a beer, man, I'm, I'm watching the bullpen. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to learn. You know, these guys are in the World Series. I want to learn. I've always felt like that, you know, I tried to, to do those things, very conscious uh, on pitch counts and, and not analytics, but I always charted every pitch from junior college, from junior college. A guy named Branch Rickey Jr. Uh, gave me the charts and showed me how to pirates. Did it, but even when I was back in junior college, it's similar. The uh, but this charts, you know, I kept looking at them and 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 and, and keeping them and and you know to, to move players around. It's uh, not to the degree that the analytics are today with all the computers, but it's it's kind of a start to that to being able to move players around and know what they're doing. And and I'm writing everything, calling pitches, running the third base, coaching the box, arguing with the umpires, getting out of a few, getting kicked out of a few games here and there, like you used to do. That's changed a lot too, and uh, but uh, you know it was a, it was a, just a time that the game was changing so much, and you were seeing guys that, and if you worked hard, there wasn't many people working hard. You know, just a couple of people. When I'm in Atlanta and Junior College, I mean Clemson was working hard. Uh, I don't think anybody else in the state of Georgia was really working that hard, and I was getting players out of South Carolina and different places, but you know, driving and going to get them some big leaguers and. Just it's changed so much now. Now they're everywhere. Recruits, recruits are everywhere. You know, Georgia Tech or Miami's got three full-time assistants that were getting paid more than I did as a head coach back in the day. And so it's uh, you know, the game's changed a lot. Pretty good. Pretty good. More kids are going to college, more people are getting degrees. A place like Miami, once we got there, I talked them into making sure they would pay for the rest of their degrees. So they would come for three or four years. But after they played for us, then Miami paid for their degree when they came back to keep them in school and get them to get that degree. Because as we know, most kids don't make it to the big leagues. So I want to make sure they had a degree in their back pocket. Another thing to sell, but it's for the right reasons. Yeah. When So when it, let's talk Miami. When it comes, when did that, that job come open? When did it get on your radar? And how difficult a decision was that to move on from Atlanta to Miami? Uh, you know, he's got stories. I don't know if I can tell all the stories, but, you know, story, uh, they called me. The job came open. And Ron Frazier, I had been his assistant on the USA team. And so I knew Coach Frazier very, very well to the point when he passed away. I did his eulogy, so I was very close to Coach Frazier and, uh, and his family. And uh, they called me and talked to me about it. And, and actually, uh, Paul D. flew up to Atlanta, wanted to talk to me, and met me at the Marriott Hotel. And, and at the airport and went over and I took him to my house in, in Atlanta. My house was on tour of homes. I had a nice home because I've been, you know, flip-flopping houses and doing stuff. So it was on the tour of homes. I just wanted him to know that I wasn't, you know, living in a shack or on a street. If he's going to get me out of, out of Georgia Tech, you know, he's ranked number one in the country. So uh, I ended up, you know, he, he uh, ended up going down to, to visit and talk to him and everything. And, he told me, you get anything that you need to win, we want you to come. I'll give you anything you need to win. I'll give you anything that football has. And I remember it's me and Paul D, because I told him at that point, if anybody finds out about this, I'm out. I don't nobody to know what's going on here. I'm going to talk to you, but I don't want anyone to know about it. So I, uh, I'm standing in center field, and he says those two things. I said, Mr. D, I said, would you please repeat that again slowly? And he, he, he told me later on, because anytime I wanted something, I said, remember when you told me and that I get anything I need to win. And he always stayed with that, with his word. And it changed after we had more ADs. Some of those words were changed, but uh, it was a different, different thing. Paul D was a great AD for me to, 
and we did everything we could to win everything we could to, uh, if I told him we needed a strength coach, just tell me why. And then we hire a strength coach. I think we're the first one of the first people to have a full-time strength coach because we felt like it was a need. When you get to Miami, Miami was an NCAA independent for baseball. Football, they were they were still in, in football, all the other sports still at a conference, NCAA independent. What were the mechanics of that? And and like especially I with schedule making, I went back and looked at old schedules you had and you guys are in, you know, whereas in once you're in the ACC, you're doing conference play for the last two months of the season or something like that. You guys are in Long Beach, you know, playing Long Beach State in April or playing Fullerton or going to, you know, really all these other programs. Each year, how much thought did you put into the schedule in, you know, we need to have these sort of teams on the schedule. We also need to have these weekends where we can pitch some seniors and, and you know, get get some different kind of work in. Like how how much of a science was that? Well, I don't know how much it was a science, but there was a lot of thought going into it. And I always did my own uh, scheduling. But I always tried to play Texas and Long Beach or Fullerton or, or, or any of the schools, Notre Dame's. Playing the Minnesota tournament with John Anderson up there because it was a really good competition thing. I felt things that would help us in recruiting, and it was great competition. The teams you're going to see in the World Series, and a lot of our games other than that were at home. But then finally, I I got a deal where, when the ACC that the top teams in the ACC, I would play home and home. That's back when I think they had eight teams. So the top teams, your Clemson's and our those type programs, I would play them home and home. But the other four. Teams would just come to Miami. I didn't have to return a series, so I got to keep more home games because revenue at Miami were always, always important. And your, your people come to the games, and uh, it was just it was a different world. And, and Bobby Crimmins, I remember Bobby is a good friend of mine. We we're hired at the same time at Georgia Tech and lived down the street from each other. And I take the job at uh, at Miami. He goes, "What are you doing, man?" This is crazy. You're leaving the ACC. You're leaving, you know, Georgia Tech to go to Miami. What are you doing? And I said, well, Bobby, that's the only way I know to explain it. I said, at Miami, I have my own TV show. The basketball coach does not have his own TV show. Just think about that for a minute and then put everything else together with it. And it's just, just a different emphasis. And, and they, all their thought process was was what do we got to do to win? How can we do the things to win? And generating, you know, all the games were on TV, which people didn't have. Uh, we were on different, a couple of different networks before, like it is now. Every game's on TV too, but, but it was different back then. We were the only one. A few, very, very few schools. Every game was going to be on TV, and the baseball coach actually had his own TV show. There just wasn't any place like that. And and then so. Paul D told me that, and, and he, at the end of it, he goes, okay, he says, now, now you think about this thing right here. He says, you don't worry about the salary, because if you want this job, I'm going to make an offer you can't turn down. And, you know, so we didn't even talk about it, but then finally it came down to him. He offered me a job, and he offered me 10 times what I was making at Georgia Tech. 10 times. So, you know, I'm not real smart, but I can figure that one out pretty quick that, you know, maybe this is the right deal. And, uh, I love real estate. I still love real estate today and, and looking at houses and I've drawn a couple of houses and stuff and I figured, okay, if I get in there and this don't work out, then I'll sell real estate in South Florida. <laughs> and so I rolled the dice and it was a great decision for me uh, to go there, to be able to go to the World Series 13 times and have all the good players to try to figure out what they were doing because I didn't know what they were doing to win, but I wanted to be part of it. With that, Miami is a school that often reflects the city around it. The roster does. A lot of Hispanic players, specifically Cuban, Puerto Rican players. Yeah. As as a white guy from, from Lexington, North Carolina, like was there an adjustment process of learning the culture, recruiting these kids, identifying these kids? Like how you know, and especially from you know, ninety four, you're young, still younger guy, younger head coach versus as it, you know towards the end of your run, like how did that, how did that change? And, and, you know, recruiting maybe a different type of kid. Well, it was like a fish out of water for me, you know, being a, you know, election in North Carolina guy. I mean, I'm, there's, there's nothing in Lexington and, you know, it's just a, it was a different world, but the real world was for me was inside the ballpark. That's all I did. I worked all day. You know, I got up in the mornings. I was in the office by seven o'clock. I uh, didn't leave till late night. I went home 
uh, came back the same morning, this, this, or the same process the next day. So all in my world was the University of Miami. And half our team were probably Latin guys at that point. But, you know, we got into the third generation or whatever, and Latin guys coming over to uh, <laughs> to the States. And and more and more I saw this. But now today the kids, the Latin kids speak much better English than they do Spanish. In fact, parents are concerned that they are losing part of their heritage because they don't speak Spanish, but they grew up in the public schools in, in a Miami, whether it was J.D. Arteaga or, you know, he, his mom had told him, she, she said, I don't want you to do any more radio interviews for the Spanish station. You're embarrassing our family. And so J.D. said, my mom says, I can't do interviews on Spanish because I don't speak Spanish good enough. I'm embarrassing them. So that kind of gives you an idea. I had a, a tutor there for a, a couple months and from eight to 10 every morning trying to learn Spanish. Like I'm thinking I, I got two coaches on my staff that are Latin. My secretary is Latin and, you know, I really didn't need it. And I'm going to a ballpark and it'd be seven or eight Cuban guys standing there talking and they're talking Spanish. And I walk up and because of the vis- visibility of a Miami program, you walk in and say, so knew who you were immediately they flip it to English. So after, after about two months, I mean, I had a headache every day, man, just trying to just drill the Spanish into me. And then I'd get on the field and everybody's talking English. So it's, uh, the, I got to tell you the transition. I was lucky the players accepted me because they knew I was coming to Miami. I left the program was number one in the country. They knew the players I left to come with them. I was trying to embrace that team on what they did. I told them, I said, listen, guys, it's my first day. Uh, you know, I know we got a great program. That's why we come here. I'm going to try not to screw this up. You guys need to help me. And and so they kind of liked that. So we were kind of a team concept from, from the beginning, working with each other. And, and uh, <clears throat> so, you know, it was, that, from my point, it wasn't tough. Going to public sometime was tough because I couldn't order food or something, but, but not, not in the ballpark. And that's where I lived. So let's talk. Uh, let's talk a different ballpark. You spent a lot of time. In. Let's talk Omaha. Um, you get to Miami and you're in Omaha. Seven out of your first eight years, two titles. What about Omaha? And and you again, you get to Omaha in three different three different decades. Um, you know, spanning spanning over you know over a twenty uh, year period. What about Omaha was always the same? And what about it was was different? You know, in 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 20 in 2016 besides obviously well, the, the obvious one the ballpark yeah well I mean, first of all i go in and i've been there about a month and and i'm meeting with with our people doing travel and we're they're asking me about hotels hotels in north carolina hotels wherever georgia tech where, where you want to stay okay where do you want to stay in omaha and i remember looking at him with his blank face like a deer in the light thing i'm sure i'm looking i'm going well i thought you had to qualify and they go we go all the time i go Okay, let's stay at the Marriott then. <laughs> and that's kind of my kickoff to Omaha. And, uh, you know, I had a lot of players that had played in Omaha twice before I got there under Coach Frazier. Because you had Coach Frazier, and a lot of people don't realize there were coach, there were actually a coach between me and Ron Frazier. His name was Brad Kelly. And things kind of fell apart that year. And then I came in. So a couple of my players were older guys, but they, so they were seniors, some of them were juniors. So they understood, you know, playing in Omaha more than I did. And uh, were able to help me through that process. And of course, after a a period of time, the first six years, we we went to Omaha every year. And some people joked and called it the the Miami Invitational. A guy named F.P. Santangelo, I'm sure you know that name big broadcaster in San Francisco, but he played in Miami, a California guy, and he just called it the Miami Invitational, Omaha. So, so that was a, that was a great thing. You kind of felt at home and we always stayed at the Marriott. We always stayed the same place. The, uh, we're going to, we're keeping the episode mostly positive, talking about good things. I do, I do want to ask the, obviously you guys are the victim of the Warren Morris Homer at LSU. So that, that game, you know, ends a season without a title ends careers. Uh, what do you, you know, being the college world series runner up is a massive accomplishment. Um, you know, I, every team in the country would probably, if you, if you gave them that at the beginning of the season, would probably take it when it's ends like that. And it's a dagger. What do you, you know, what did you say to, what do you say to a team after something that, 
that brutal because that ball just snaked out of there. <clears throat> well, in Miami, first of all, they won't take a second. I'm interviewing for the job. Another story. I'm interviewing for the job. I'm walking in the locker room. I don't know where the players, I guess it was a break, but some players weren't there. I don't know why. Nobody was there to build it. So we go into the players' locker room. And right beside the players' right locker room is the bathroom. That's the door that automatically closes. But he's showing me around, but the door is held open with a doorstop. The doorstop is a national runner up trophy <laughs> that looked like it had been wet on. And I went, I remember looking at that trophy and I looked at Mr. D and I looked down and I said, man, it's a tough place to coach right here. And then sure enough, you know, in 96, we lose on the last pitch to Warren Morris and Paul D comes to my only time he would come and meet with me was after a tough loss, you know, to console me and support me. That he was a great AD, the best for me. And, uh, he, uh, uh, so he's talking to me for about an hour and I don't, I don't hear a word, man. I'm just, I'm, I'm in shock that we lost because I'm already designing the ring after we get to second out and strike out a right hand and hit her, hit her more with Mars. So say, uh, Robbie Mars and our pitcher, those breaking ball strikes out. And then we move the infield back and then we got Warren Mars coming up that's hitting 220 with no home runs. They hit he's got like a bum wrist or something. He's been, yeah. hurt, been hurt the whole year. Yeah. Yeah. He'd been hurt. And, uh, so, uh, you know, I mean, it puts me in shock. I, I've never had so many nightmares. I had a, people ask me, how did that game affect me? How did it affect me? I would wake up. This happened numerous times in the middle of the night. I would have this nightmare and the game was going on and I could, I was laying down on the ground, looking out underneath the stadium. I could see the field and I could see the game going on, but I couldn't get out and I'd wake up sweating. And it was that game. And I'm telling you, until 99, I kept having that dream. And it was killing me, waking up in the middle of the night, sweating, getting up and going, you know, people want to know how that affects you. Thank goodness in 99, we won it. You know, three years later, we won it. And and uh, I hadn't had that dream since, knock on wood. But uh, it, 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 it devastated me. I've never had anything hit me so hard as that game right there because I thought we had it won. And we'd been there six times. And, you know, we were right there and uh, we, I thought we had it and they just, they killed the players too. It was tough. Like we go in the locker room and, and you always show the replays of Alex Cora, the shortstop laying on the ground crying. Mm-hmm. And he was, so I get to the locker room and I mean, I'm in, I'm, I'm in shock as much as the players, everybody's in shock. And Cora stands up and Cora's crying so hard that you can't hardly understand him. I didn't ask him to stand up. He just stood up. It's the type of leader he is. He stood up and thanked Robbie Morrison. He told Robbie, he said, Robbie, he goes, if it wasn't for you, we wouldn't be here. He was all American close. If it wasn't for you, we wouldn't be here, and we all love you. So if you weren't crying by then, then you were crying. After Core stood up, and I'm, in the meantime, I'm thinking, I got to take two guys off his team and go to a press conference. And I'm looking around the locker room like, I don't know whether I can go to this press conference and I'm trying to figure out who are the two guys that I'm taking with me. And it's not Robbie Morrison and it's not an Alex Cora. I can tell you that at that point. And so we were, we were devastated. No question about it. And, and I hear about that game too much, but I accept it more uh, with uh, the fact we want to rank. Of course, JD was a starting pitcher. Our new head coach in Miami was the starting pitcher in that game. He threw seven innings, and I took him out. If he told me if I'd have left him in, we'd have won. I don't know how many times J.D.'s told me that. You, why'd you take me out? Because J.D.'s, you talk about complete games and pitch counts. I probably got four or five complete games at Miami in my entire coaching career because we never had any pitchers in top 20 uh, innings pitch because I believe in developing a bullpen. And I think J.D.'s got every one of them. You know, he was a soft throwing left-hander that located, moved it in and out. Jay could throw. He had a rubber arm, and he, you know, he. I mean, he never threw 160 pitches or anything like that. But you know, he threw over 100, and he come back quicker than anybody else, and was a great competitor, and still is. Well, let's talk about that '99 team then. Let's talk about something a little more, right. a little more enjoyable. So, <laughs> it, you go to Omaha 13 times with Miami. You win two titles, '99 and '01. Was there anything at the time where you're like, oh, this team is different, this this title team? Like, is there anything that makes a title team different? Or is, especially then when the 
the college world series wasn't structured quite the same way where it's, it's a championship game. It's not championship series. Like, or is it just like, man, they, they found a way to put it together. I don't, I don't think, I mean, I think like FP said, you know, it's a Miami invitational by that point. I'm thinking we, 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 uh, we go every year. That's just part of, part of our schedule. It's going to, and I felt like that kind of, and so did the players, which is a good thing, by the way. And even better, so did the other team that we're playing. Felt like, hey, this is Miami. They they always win. And so, 99, we were ranked number one. The only time we we won, in, I think, ranked number one. And to this day, the only team that went in ranked number one that won it. And we swept, you know, everything, the regionals and everything and the World Series to be able to win. So it was a it was a good team. Everybody were pro players, and we had a really good bullpen. And Mike New, the pitch in the big league, was our uh, our closer. But we're playing a small school from North Florida called Florida State. I'm just kidding. You know, they're in 99. And we win 6-5, but they got a man on first with two outs. Man on first with two outs. And, man, I'm having flashbacks to 96. And they got a right-handed hitter, and the wind's blowing out to, to left field. And he hits a long fly ball that just keeps drifting and drifting and drifting. And you're going, please come down. And Are I you thinking about goes, selling real estate at that point? Oh, like that ball goes out, I'm out of here. Yeah, I didn't know what to do. It took so long for this fly ball to come down and our left fielder to catch it on the warning track. Of course, we won six by. And uh, so it's uh, what a great win. What a great win that was. And, of course, 0-1 was a great win. People always ask, what's your best player? I mean, I had – I don't know. I had 200 guys drafted professionally, a lot of first-rounders, a couple of number one picks. I mean, I had a, got a lot of great players. But I can tell you what my two best teams are because I never tell you my best players are because I don't want to insult somebody. We had so many good ones. But 1999 and 0-1 were my best team because they got a ring. I got one of my own for you today. Just So you asked me about the ring. So with my U on it here. So – you can see that. So it's a good, good looking ring. Uh, good looking ring. Well, I, I won't make you pick, obviously, pick between favorites as far as best players or some, but there are some guys I just want to hear about because there are there are guys who just just get to a different level in college. First, I want to hear about the first time you saw Pat the Bat take uh, take BP. Well, I, I got to tell you, I mean, Pat Pat's a guy that visited Miami and was our second choice. He wasn't our first choice at that point uh, when he came in for his visit. And he was good. But he got a lot better after his senior year playing for the team out of Ohio, the Warhawks. And and he was drafted a 42nd or 43rd round by the Red Sox, and they offered him $1,000, $1,000. He comes into our park, and every, every year – in Miami, they're still doing this unless JD's going to change it. But that first day, you'd have a workout, to kind of a showcase for the players. Well, Pat comes in, and he's hitting bombs. I'm going, oh, my goodness. I mean, I couldn't believe it. how good this guy had gotten. And then he's coming to school. Of course, he hit 494 as a freshman. The hardest I've ever seen anybody hit a ball. I mean, if he made an out, it was a hard out. He hit the ball so hard. And – he committed on the trip. On the trip, he was on his way back from the hotel. Rob Cooper, the Penn State guy that played at Miami and coached for me, I actually gave him a ride back that morning because I signed all five o'clock flights to uh, you know, rookie coaches. And he committed on the way back to the airport, and he wasn't supposed to do that. We made him an offer, but he committed to come. And of course, it ended up being the right decision. And uh, for him and for us. And then uh, three years later, he's the first pick uh, by the Phillies. And that's the only guy in my coaching career that I ever knew before the draft where a player was going. Because Pat was in, he had been hurt his junior year, and he, uh, or during the season, and the general manager, the scouting director, and a local scout, area scout, uh, was in my office with Pat. And they'd come and watch him work out. And so they're talking and they said, now, Pat, we want, we want to know something. We got two questions for you. He said, uh, do you have a problem if we change your position? Because our best player is a third baseman, Scott Rowland. He said, we may have to change you to another position. Do you have a problem with that? 
And Pat says, no, as long as I'm hidden. They said, well, we understand the money. The money's J.D. Drew money, which was $8 million. And the, the, uh, they said, okay, we got, we got this, we got a deal. First pick, $8 million. And he gets the money. And then the story is the, he's the second leading hitter, home run hitter ever for the Phillies. Mike Smith's one, Pat Burrow's two. People don't realize that because, you know, it's tough to play in Philly. But, uh, but the guy could hit. And there's a lot of Pat Burrow stories, uh, you know, that I can tell because he's, he, he, he got a lot of stories. Anyway. Pat so, Burrell's stories are like kind of a, a tall tale thing that just goes around baseball locker rooms, just the, the things you hear about Pat Burrell. But with guys like that who come in, like Pat Burrell, Yonder Alonzo, Zach Collins, guy, fre, fre, when freshmen come in in the fall, how early, like a Ryan Braun, how early in the fall do you mentally pencil it in of like, okay, this freshman is starting from the get-go? Like what's the earliest you can say this, this guy's playing? Well, you know, I never said it after fall practice, but, you know, I'm thinking, where's Pat going to play? If you're talking about Burrow, or, you know, Ryan Braun was a USA player and a great player that narrowed it between us and Stanford. And is, a, is another story. I mean, he's a West Coast guy, another L.A. guy. Of course, Burrow is uh, up uh, around the Bay Area, so another California guy. So I were, I signed like one guy a year out of California, and every one of them turned out to be great. But uh, I know uh, – Ron had an air between Stanford. He, he visited schools, Notre Dame, SC, I don't know, or maybe UCLA, but he took his five visits and they did a big article. He was rookie of the year his, his uh, first year in the big leagues, two years later, he got to break quick. And uh, he, uh, uh, I remember they did a big story in, uh, I, I think it was USA Today. And his mom works for Budweiser and she works. So she was a brewer, she made beer. Well, he's playing for the Milwaukee Brewers. So they interview her and they said, well, you know, no disrespect to Miami, but he's a West Coast guy in Stanford. They're pretty good in baseball too. Why didn't he go to Stanford? And it's funny how you remember certain stories. Because she committed to me on the front porch of the president's house. And uh, so we, we were pulling out strength, all strings to try to get Pat. I mean, try to get Ryan. And uh, she says, well, you know, he visited Stanford and he visited Miami. said, said, uh, so when he took his visit on, on Miami, he says, because I think he's going to say, you know, he came here because of me, right? He said, he said, he could not believe how good looking the girls were in Miami. <laughs> <laughs> so from that point on, every time we had an official visit, we made sure that when we took a tour of campus, it's when the classes are changing. So the, the guys could, uh, you know, you could see the girls that they were talking about. If that's going to impact the decision more baseball, we got to make sure they see the girls. And that's a, that's a Ryan Braun story, which I'm sure his mother and him would, uh, you know, tell you that's the truth. Are there any, you, you've brought in a lot of these guys, a lot of, you know, just in the, the two thousands first round picks between Braun and John Jay and yonder and Jamal weeks. And are there any, any battles, the recruiting battles that you lost, like ones you wish you could have back or guys you thought you had who, who walked like, who are the, are, are there any ones that got away for you? I mean, there's a lot of uh, guys that got away, you know, if I, tr if I was going to remember them, uh, but, uh, geez, <clears throat> I, uh, I've got a very short memory when it comes to recruiting. If we try to sign, if we're trying to sign a guy and we lose him, man, I forget his name within 24 hours. I'm just telling you, that's just the way I, I don't, I forget who it was and whatever. If you ask me 10 later, 10 years, later, I don't even know the name anymore, but who's the second baseman for the Red Sox? The great player from Arizona that played. I mean, oh, Pedroia. Pedroia. Pedroia is from Arizona. He's got Miami stuff all over his bedroom. He's got all this Miami stuff. So he's coming to Miami. He's supposed to visit Miami and a weekend before he goes to Arizona state and commits to Arizona state and doesn't take his visit. So that's one that I thought we had and we didn't, and he didn't visit. They talked him into uh, canceling the visit. So I don't know how they did that, but they did. And uh, now guys, you know, they commit early. But that's, that was a great player. But, you know, I've had a lot of really good players, you know. You know, at the other end, and Alex Rodriguez, he committed and signed with us and and is on campus to go to class his first day. And of course, Scott Boris is his agent. And uh, But you, you're eligible to sign pro until walking in the classroom. 
So we're following, man. We're following, and we're going to push him in the door when he gets there. You know, we got to get him in. And uh, he uh, <clears throat> he signs like an hour before his first class he commits at seven o'clock in the morning. His first class was eight o'clock, and and I always tell Alex, I said, man, you'd have come to Miami, I'd have made you a good player. And he just laughs, but uh, you know he. Uh, so you lose guys like that first round type guys that. Uh, but you, you know, Alex Scores is there all the time in ballparks named after yeah, him. He made good on the, uh, he, he at least came through with that donation after the fact. Yeah. Yeah. He did. I got a story about the donation too. But, uh, you know, we're on the field and we're trying to get a stadium. And Alex comes and talks to the team. And it's a great speech. He's talking about visualization and all this stuff to our players. The whole, I mean, it was a great speech he gave to the team. So afterwards, the team goes to right field to stretch. And I'm standing there in the dugout with Alex, just me and him. And, I said, Alex, I said, I want you to do me a favor. And he said, what's that? I said, I want you to close your eyes and visualize something. And this is right after his visualization speaks. I want you to visualize something. I want you to say, he was what the Rangers did. I want you to think you're in the locker room with your teammates. And there's a rain delay, and you guys are in the locker room, and the TV's on, and you're watching a college guy game like a lot of you guys do. And it's Miami playing, and they're playing on TV, and you and your teammates are watching and all of a sudden, it flips to the scoreboard, and the scoreboard says Alex Rodriguez Park. And he smiled and opened his, eye, his eyes. Said, "I would like that." So that's kind of the way that started. And uh, and of course, he wrote a nice check and to to be up for that to happen. That's a that's a big recruiting pitch right there. That's, yeah, that's a good yeah. stuff. That's how you got all those guys to campus. Um, so with that, you you have this this storied career, and you did an interesting thing with retirement in that you kind of predetermined you got, you know, you, you sign the contract extension and then it's like after in a couple seasons, you're, you're hanging it up. What, what went into deciding, you know, it, it, it was time basically. Well, it was probably time. And that was, you know, I, I look at back then I'm not, I don't think that's the right way to handle it by the school or me, by the way, because he kind of let, left you hanging. And uh, so that, that's, that will, Ended up not being a good thing, but I, you know, I retired when I was 68. So I, it was time for me to hang, hang it up. I'd won a lot. I'd been a head coach since I was 24. Jim Laranager, our, our, our basketball coach is much older than me. He's a month older, much older than me. I always tell him that. And Laranager goes, what are you doing, man? You're too young to retire. And I said, coach, I said, when did, when did you first become a head coach? And he, he told me he was in his early forties. I said, Coach, I was a head coach when I was 24, man. <laughs> you know what? It's the right time. I've been coaching so long. And, and he looks at me like, you know, you, you may be right. But, uh, of course, he just signs an extension this year through, I don't know how many, five, uh, three or four or five more years. And, and he's a great floor coach. So I said, that's good for everybody. Well, I'm curious. You, We have kids similar ages, and we, we talked before we started recording, and you've told me, you know, you help out with, coaching and little league and stuff like that. How much stuff do you do get to do with your son that if you were coaching at Miami would not be, would not be on the table? Everything, everything, man. I'm just telling you, it's, uh, I mean, like my son's playing tennis right now with my wife. So I said, Will, what do you want to do this afternoon when you get home? He goes, I want to hit. He says, let's go out and hit. So I'm, I'm throwing, throwing baseballs with him all the time, or I guess about, Six months ago, I'm out playing with him, doing some stuff, and the phone rings. It's Tino Martinez that played for me on the USA team. My wife picks up. She says, and she comes out to get me on my phone. She says, she says, Tino Martinez is in here, so he needs to talk to you. So I, so I come in and answer the phone. He goes, what are you huffing and puffing for? I said, well, I played about 30 minutes of one-on-one with my son in basketball, and then we played some horse, and now we're running, playing football, and I'm throwing him routes you know, out passes. I said, but then he wants to throw me route passes. So now I'm running outs down the street, you know, and he's throwing them to me. I'm, I'm 73 years old. I'm running out patterns and I, I'm, uh, and Tino's laughing so hard and, and, uh, and, you know, I wish I had it on video because my son goes, dad, you look like you run in slow motion. And that's what I did best. So I couldn't do all those things because my, 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 my day is, is determined by what his schedule is. And uh, if I wasn't doing this interview right now, I'd be watching him playing tennis. 
him and my wife play tennis and I enjoy uh, do that. I, so I'm lucky that I can go and do anything that they want to do. And that's my number one priority, spending time with my family right now. And uh, so, so I, I, all those things are good. And I, I couldn't do those things because I was always gone. You know, you, you know, you, you, you just couldn't go watch them play. You couldn't watch them do it. And my son didn't start playing baseball until he got here two years ago. Well, we won't, uh, we won't keep you, keep you from for too much longer. Really just want to end with, if you could go back and give your 24 year old self a pep talk, taking that job at DeKalb, what would that, that pep talk look like? Well, I, I mean, I was like a deer in the headlights. I think I said, cause I didn't really realize what I was getting. But if I was, if I knew what that was doing, I'd probably been nervous, which I wasn't. And uh, I would have said, man, you got to get this job. You got to get this job. It's going to open the job. It's going to open for your whole career right here. It's going to be a great opportunity. I didn't know that. I didn't know those things. And it did. I remember sitting in the office, my first practice, and I'm sitting, I don't have any windows in my office at, at Cap College. You know, I was lucky to have an office. And I'm sitting there, the door's closed. I remember looking at the wall and thinking, I wonder how this is going to work out. Am I going to be any good at this? <laughs> and that seems like yesterday. And then I go to practice and I kick the gate open to go in and I kick it closed when I'm, when I left, it was much like a Billy Martin style because that's old school. And that's the way it was when I first started coaching. I want to make sure they knew I was the boss and I wasn't their friend. And whereas today, and then toward the end of my career, I'm trying to convince them that I'm their friend. Now, come on, let's work together. I got a quick rapid fire for you, and then I'll let you get out of here. Okay. Favorite ACC ballpark that is not Miami? Clemson. Best player you ever faced? Oh, how about back-to-back Bo Jackson and Frank Thomas at Albert? Oh, man. Oh, so, okay. So you, you played that Auburn team. We got we to gotta pause real quick. So you guys had to face those two guys hitting the same, same lineup? Back-to-back. Of course, I had Kevin Brown pitching. That helped. No, that was back to back. Nothing like those two horses. Yeah, that's that's unreal. Um, best team you've ever coached against that was not your own. Best team you've ever seen. Best coach team, Cal State Fullerton. Those guys know how to play the game, especially when all you was there. And all you was my assistant coach on a USA team, and they named me head coach. And I said, "Can I name whoever I want?" Well, I named all you my assistant because I want to learn from him. You know, I want to see, I want to make him do stuff so I can watch him. Those, those guys were just machines. I was in 1999, by the way, when, when, when I saw him play and they came into Miami and swept a three game series. The only time in my career that we were ever swept at home and they put on a clinic and then we went and won everything. We didn't lose another game. I told our team, if you play like this, that's the way you're supposed to play. And we're good. And every game went down to the end. I said, you know, we can we can do this. Let's learn from this game. Best Miami food spot? Oh, Prime One Twelve. B- best uh, food, best talent. That was that was quick. Not even a hesitation. South um, Beach, South Beach. I lived <laughs> in South Beach for a while, and that's the the toughest place to get into. And but it, it wasn't for me. Yeah. Is there a strategic do over? You would like if you had if you had one thing you could change strategically in any game you've coached in? Is, is yeah, I guess so. Warren Morris, a fastball, not a curveball. <laughs> he had a low and end curveball. Though. I don't even think it was a strike. I've watched the uh, I've watched the documentary, and yeah, uh, it was it was heading towards the shins, and he just got. I mean, our catcher went down to block it. That pitcher's in LSU's uh, office. It's a pitcher, and our catcher's down both knees to block it. It never got there. I got to tell you, I watched the Dodgers where Gibson hit the home run off accurately. It's before your time. And I thought it was such a great thing with Gibson and everything. I was friends with Tommy Lasorda, and I went to Dodger Stadium all the time. And then all of a sudden, that happens to me. And I'm thinking, I'm thinking more about Eckersley. They gave up the home run, and now he had to be crushed. So, yeah. Last one. Can you pick a favorite win? Oh, the '99 championship. Yeah, first national title. My goodness, it was such a big deal. Such a big deal. That uh, unbelievable, and uh, it's just you know we we just just had to have it had to have one of those rings, and uh, I remember the off season in two thousand after we had won it we didn't go to the World Series, and I'm at home and the Red Sox come in town to Veritech and Nomar called me and asked me to come to the game. I was too embarrassed to go outside. 
And that was the, that was the first time you hadn't been to the College World Series yeah. in Miami. First time. And I was embarrassed I wouldn't go to the ballpark. I would not go out to the ballpark because I, I didn't want to face people. And they go, come on, man, come early and come see us. And yeah, I can't come. I said, I just, I just can't go out right now. And they're like, wow. You know, but it was. That's, that's a, it was the toughest one. Well, you went back and, uh, and got it the next year. Coach Morris, that is all I've got for you. Congratulations on your, your recent Hall of Fame induction. Thank you so much for joining from Phenom to the Farm. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. It was great. I, I love the questions and, uh, you know, brings back great memories, just like the Hall of Fame yesterday with all the phone calls. You got it, Coach. And that's it for today's episode of Phenom to the Farm. Huge thanks to Jim Morris for stopping by, walking us through his career. If you enjoyed this one, subscribe wherever you get your podcast and tune in in two weeks. Thanks for listening. Thank you.